let's hit it. And welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Right, here we go. What you think about? Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I hope you enjoyed our opening music. It's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Dora, and you can upload that on any of our favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer's Speaks is about sound news, not just sound bites. We want to raise all voices and tell you the real story of what is going on, what works and what doesn't so that you can improve your life and your journey with dementia. And today on this show, we have partnered with the Roseville Alzheimer's and Dementia Community Action Team, which provides resource information for caregivers and people living with dementia, especially during the pandemic. And for many of our listeners, you may have known that I had done a lot of COVID specials when things first started rolling out in March, April, May. Then I kind of pulled back because a lot of others were doing it. And now there's not as many shows, but there's still a lot going on. And so Roseville has a lot to say about that. So we are going to be talking with several different people in their group that are making a big difference during the pandemic. But first, before I introduce our guest today, I want to do a shout out to a few organizations who are doing great work. The first is the Memory Cafe Directory, which there are over a hundred cafes that are now virtual. I do three of those myself. I partner with Arthur's Senior Living, and we do a cafe on the second and fourth Wednesday of each month at one o'clock central. And then I also partner with Artist Senior Living of Woodbury, Minnesota, and we do one on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. And you can just reach out to me to get more information or better yet, go to the memorycafedirectory.com to find them all. Also want to give a shout out to Coral Health. They have some music apps that they are allowing people to download free during the pandemic. One is called Music First and the other is Coral Faith. Just go to coralhealth.com, that's C-O-R-O health.com. And then I would be amiss if I didn't talk about the Dementia Map, a global resource directory, which was just launched by uh, Dave Weedruck and myself. And I'm really excited about this. This has been a dream of mine for 36 years. So go to DementiaMap.com to find out a little bit more. And on the upper right-hand corner, you can sign up to take a tour. And that tour would be with me. And I can show you around the site. You'll be surprised at what all it has to offer. It's much more than just a listing. And we're going to hear from the foot bar walker. And we'll be right back. 
Introducing the life-changing Foot Bar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Foot Bar Walker revolutionized my care of George. It absolutely benefits the patient and the caregiver both, and that's the beauty of it. It's so easy to use. It folds up just like a dream. I got it in and out of the car without any effort at all. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle? to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Foot Bar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Foot Bar Walker. Okay, it's time to introduce you to our guest today. So let's learn together about what the Roseville Alzheimer's and Dementia Community Action Team is doing with their caring and coping during the pandemic series. Today, we have Cassandra Harvey with us who has her master's and she is the Healthy Aging and Caregiving Supports Manager at Amherst H. Wilder Foundation. She's been with the organization since 2019, and she oversees multiple services, including caregiver consultations, peer support groups, health and wellness classes, small group respite, and home delivered meals as well. Prior to working at Wilder, she managed a community residence for individuals with developmental disabilities. So welcome, Cassandra. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you, Laurie? I'm doing, I'm doing great. I really appreciate you taking the time out to be with us today. This is such an important topic, especially with COVID. People need to know what services are out there for them, and you guys are doing some cool things. But before we get down our line of questioning, I always like our audience to know if you've been personally touched by dementia in your own family or circle of friends. I have, absolutely. I'm, I'm not sure there's too many people who could say they haven't at, at this point. My, my first experience very distinctly as a child, a neighbor with dementia who had lived alone at the time. One day, my sister and I went to my mom and said, she's just acting so different, what's wrong? And my mom had to explain, she's losing her memory and this is why she's not plucking the roses anymore. She's cutting the dandelions and this is how she's, these are the things that are happening that you're seeing and this is what you need to do when you see those things. And that really stood out as the like, oh, that happens. As an adult, you can lose your memory, wow. (laughs) Yeah, who'd who'd have thunk, huh? (laughs) Who'd have thought? Well, thanks for sharing that. I want you to explain to us what Wilder is all about, and especially as it relates to to dementia and um, giving care. Wilder, we like to say we're here for good. Our mission is to improve lives today and for generations to come. Um, We take a whole family approach to that. We have services for infants through older adults, and we also have wide, uh, well-known research division that help gather and share information about really pressing issues such as the homelessness, housing, mental health, food access, and similar things. There's lots of things I could say about Wilder's mission, but we our, our focus is to combine knowledge, compassion, and action to help create um, a better future for all people in the greater St. Paul area. Our original mission, our organization started in for St. Paul in the East Metro. 
Okay, great. And that's in Minnesota, for those of you that don't know. <laughs> so she's in my territory in Minnesota. What about COVID-19? The, the restrictions, you know, they've been all over the board. I know that they must have impacted your services, your activities, the people living with dementia, the families, your staff, the whole nine yards. What the heck happened with your organization and how did you guys deal with it, especially the first few months back in March when when all this hit and it was all so new? Oh, yes. When it first started happening, it was like, oh, there's a case here and there and we're looking at maybe two weeks of needing to change things up. And then from there, we obviously we know now that it's not the case, but I, I think Basically, just about mid-March, everything in person came to a screeching halt. We had a lot of congregate adult, older adult activities and services. We had adult day. We had caregivers work groups. Really, every every service we had had some kind of in-person component, and all of that needed to, to stop until we could really figure out what is the way to do things safely. Can we move things to non-in-person support? And so we, we began transitioning things to online our first thing we did online jumped into pretty quickly with a steep learning curve was a virtual adult day service. So engaging activities via virtual platform with our clients from adult day who are now home and our staff who had some who had never been in a Zoom meeting before and suddenly we're, we're conducting a whole day of adult day over a virtual platform. So it was a very steep learning curve. We learned a lot quickly. And that, that first program, that first jump in, it really helped us learn what that one of the main issues was going to be for older adults with technology access is now a huge issue. A lot of our clients, adult day clients, older adults, many with memory loss, many from lower income households and didn't have maybe the right equipment to be able to connect. So we were able to reach out to the community, to volunteers, um, say, hey, does anybody have a device laying around your house that, you know, maybe it's out of date or something. We just need some, it just needs to be able to get online um, because we have people who are at home that, who need that connection. And we had an amazing community came together and donated quite a few devices for our adult day clients, which was just great to see. And so they were able to connect with virtual adult day, which we continued through June. So we did several months of, of that. Wonderful. I, I know a lot of adult days have, you know, just totally gone out of business. Has yours shut down? You said you were doing that through June or are you continuing to do things online or even in person? So we did, we did actually close, permanently close our adult day at the end of June for those clients. And from that program sprang several other services. We partnered with the Metropolitan Area um, Agency on Aging. <laughs> MAAA, to offer something called telephone reassurance, which is basically a weekly or sometimes daily phone call to those older adults. And we started that program with basically all of our adult day clients, um, former adult day clients, so we could stay connected with them, even though we weren't able to continue adult day. But yes, it has been a huge loss. The pandemic has created a huge loss to long-term care options for older adults with the many adult days that have permanently closed. And even the ones who have temporarily closed the decline of in clients with memory loss when they don't have that daily or even just a few times a week connection with any social support, that they decline much faster. We've seen that a lot. Very, very unfortunate. 
Yeah. You had mentioned you started several other ones. You mentioned the telephone assurance. What other types of things did you guys pull out of your sleeve during this time with COVID? I think our, our biggest thing that we did is that, and it stems from adult day because the initial concept was similar, is that we heard from our caregivers that even though we love the phone calls or the virtual activities and, you know, the caregiver might be participating in a virtual support group, they really need the break from what we call caregiver respite, which is an actual in-person service where the caregiver can walk away, know their, the person, their, their care partner is being looked after, taken care of, has friends, has a social support, is you know, maybe receiving a meal and whatnot. So we started something called Wilder Connect, which is a small group in-person caregiver respite. It is a very small group. It's five to seven clients who meet in four-hour time slots on weekdays. And we have, it's in a large room with physical distancing, with table dividers, with everyone's wearing masks. And there's, there's all those restrictions that you need to keep something like that as safe as possible, but be able to offer that in-person respite service, which the caregivers were just asking. They said that's, that's what they need. They just, even once a week, they just need a real actual break. And how long of a time period is that then, that they're there with you? Four hours. Four hours. Okay. So that's a that's a good amount of time for sure. And and I know it's much harder staffing wise and I mean just all the all the different things that you have to do in order to do those in person things. But I've heard the same as you is families are really struggling and they, they do need these breaks and they need them for more than just an hour, which some are doing Zoom meetings, and that's nice, but it's not enough for them to maybe be able to run out to the store or even take a nap or do some laundry. I mean, an hour goes by so quickly by the time you get somebody set up if they need that um, additional help. Any other programs that you're doing that are different now or things that you've been able to continue that you were doing prior to COVID hitting? We are, whew, there's a lot. <laughs> I think, so we've had a home delivered meals. We're one of the Ramsey County Meals and Wheels providers. I think within about two weeks, um, our awesome Meals and Wheels coordinator had moved everything from a daily hot meal to a frozen weekly delivery to reduce that contact time between our mini volunteers and our, the older adults. We certainly didn't want to be the only exposure to COVID being a volunteer who's dropping off a meal every day to our you know, older adults in our community. So that was a big concern. We switched those meals over, but then we realized that one of the, there was a couple of things that stemmed from that. First of which was that some of our older adults with memory loss, who either live alone or sometimes live with a care partner who is working during the day, um, maybe working outside of the home, they actually aren't able to heat up a meal. So we did switch a very small group just for those who are further along in, the, in, in dementia, who are in a later stage of memory loss, we switch them back to a, a daily hot meal with a number of safety protocols around COVID. And then the other thing that we realized was missing from the frozen drop-off is that something that the caregivers have always said is very important is that there is that check-in, right? So someone's knocking on the door, the person answers, you're like, how are you doing today? Here's, here's the pass off of the meal. You get a look in the house real quick. You get a, you have that conversation. If they seem confused or disoriented, you can do something about that. The volunteer check-in is a huge part of why Meals and Wheels is such an important program. 
because we weren't able to do that more than that one weekly delivery of frozen meals, we added wellness calls. And it was so great to see the community, our volunteers, because Meals on Wheels is a volunteer-led program. We have more than 300 volunteers every year who um, operate Meals on Wheels. And they stepped in. If they normally delivered a route of 10 hot meals every Thursday, they would call those 10 clients every Thursday and, and have that conversation, check in with them, which has just been great. To, and then they, if the client says some of those connections have, there was a lot of unrest here in Minnesota, obviously the murder of George Floyd and civil unrest that really was impacted our, the older adults in our service area. Someone would, you know, their volunteer called and said, how are you doing? And they said, well, I, my pharmacy's not operating. I don't know how to get my meds. And the volunteer was able to connect them with, you know, another service that was able to get their meds filled. So we've seen really cool stories come out of being able to continue those connections. But of course, we had to learn what connections we needed to continue first. So. <laughs> sure. But it's it's nice that you guys didn't just put something in place and then go, okay, that's all we're doing. I mean, it sounds like you continue to listen and adjust and pivot to meet the needs. And and that is what's so needed. And so I, I thank you guys for doing that because not everybody is doing that out there. A lot of people are kind of throwing stuff on the wall, kind of like a spaghetti noodle. And if it sticks, great. And if it doesn't, well, we tried. But you seem to really have this force and this belief that it's more than just, a, you know, it's more of a trial and error. And, you know, we're going to try this. And if it doesn't work, we're still listening to the needs and we still want to meet the needs of the communities. And if that means that we're going to partnership with AAA or we're going to do something with Meals on Wheels or whatever it is, you know, you're going to go forth. You're going to call on your volunteers to have that 300 volunteer base is incredible. But I'm sure for, for the volunteers, it made them feel really good too, that they could still participate because if they weren't able to, you know, if they were cut back or maybe they just health-wise couldn't participate anymore, I'm sure that was very fulfilling for them to be able to step up and still contribute as well. I think that that is the biggest thing we've learned through COVID is that adaptation is key. And while there has always been extremely adaptive, we've been an organization since 1906, so there's been a lot of changes in the last century. But definitely COVID has showed us that you're going to be quick on your feet, but you also have to keep it's that trial and error. What's working? What isn't? How do we tweak it to, to make it while keeping people safe? Yeah. What have you been hearing from your clients themselves? Have you Have they been reaching out just to say thanks or this is working or that it sounds like you, you were hearing some comments that this wasn't working and you know you had your little tribes out there too kind of checking on things but what kinds of things were you hearing from families we did hear prior to starting the small group respite which started mid-august we did hear from a lot of caregivers that they their stress levels were through the roof and they they really needed that in-person break and since then, we do regular check-ins with our caregivers who have a client or who have a loved one in our, our respite program. And they, they gush, honestly. It's, <laughs> I'm always just, yep, our staff are amazing. Yep, they were so great. We're so glad that we can provide this service for you. And that's all you can really say. And just thank you for, you know, having your client attend, attend it. And they, if I run into someone in the parking lot, they just, it's, we're so happy that you're offering this. It's such a great program. Your staff are amazing. The activities are so great. It's been really fun. What we've always done with all of our services is try to integrate as much as possible. We offer health and wellness classes, CDS and evidence-based programs. 
also in partnership with the local area agency on aging. And one of the classes is called Tai Chi for Better Balance. And we decided to do this as a virtual class while also having our, so both people in the community who sign up for it and our respite clients who are in this group also to be able to participate for their exercise because we always do it 45 minutes to an hour of exercise in each respite program. And we've had some of the spouses or other family members say, my spouse keeps talking about this class. Can I join it too? And they'll join from home the same virtual class their loved one is, is attending in our small group respite, which is just great to see some benefits can be the ripple effect of some of those services. So no, no shortage on people seem very pleased with the in-person small group respite. Some of our other feedback, we did peer support groups for caregivers. We moved those all online for several months. And honestly, the, we have some people who just said, you know what, I just don't feel the same connection as an in-person group. Can we please come back in person? And others were like, no, we don't feel safe with that. So we said, how can we make this hybrid so that people can be in, in person and online and in a safe way? And so we were able to, our caregiver services coordinator did a great job adjusting where we have a, we did our groups in the courtyard initially until it got too cold. We, we a large room where everyone is, you know, safe, spaced apart, of course, and masks and do the screening and and the sort of things you do these days. In one of those chairs around the table is the computer with the four or five people who are virtual as part of that group as well, connected to a, a larger TV screen and a bigger audio system. So they, they feel like they're participating. Um, and that's actually just worked really well, that hybrid. It was, there's definitely trial and error with that as well. How do we adjust this and that? And can you hear everyone, can see everyone and so forth? that creating that hybrid version was really successful too. People who really needed the in-person connection and other people who just didn't feel safe with it, they can still connect together. Now, was for those support groups, is that just for caregivers or is that for a person with dementia and their care partner? So we don't have any dyad support groups. Our support groups are at the same time as respite. So they happen at, at and at a parallel time frame, so that there is that option. So you don't have to leave the person you're caring for alone, but we don't have any like mutually attended groups. Okay. I didn't know if you had like any memory cafe concepts or yeah. anything like that. We did. We had memory cafe through March and then that, that had closed down. And um, we haven't, that is one thing that has been a sort of a bubbling, like how can we start this back up again? We had hosted it at Health Partners Neuroscience Center in partnership with them up until March. We heard from the group that not, not a lot were interested in online at that time. How can we bring back Memory Cafe is still a, a concept we'd, we'd love to pursue. <laughs> yeah, I know I, I do a, a few of them and there's, a, there's only about a hundred of them that have converted to online. And the, the thing with you know the online ones is anybody from anywhere can pretty much join any of them too. And I think so much of it is that whole, oh, they don't know how to do technology. But then once people, you know, once you step them through it, they're like, I can do this. You know, I, I can, I can have my Bible club. I, I can, I can do my prayer chain. I can do my book club. We can, you know, and then all of a sudden they're getting together with all these people because they've discovered it's not as spooky as what they thought. And that is difficult, which is really, that's a really fun, fun piece to be able to see. One of the things I wanted to ask you was for respite, if there was transportation with that, or if people had to drop their loved one off 
And then also you had mentioned that your support group met at the same time as respite. Do your support groups go for four hours as well, or are they a shorter period? Okay. <laughs> I was wondering. <laughs> no, for example, our, on Thursdays, respite is from 10 to two every Thursday. Our support group is just once a month. So it's from 10 to 1130 on a Thursday, the first, uh, the second Thursday of the month. We hope that gives them time to go to the support group and then maybe leave and have some lunch and run some errands, then still come back and, and pick up the, the person after respite. We don't currently offer transportation, something we, we are seriously considering in the future, but it was very complicated setting up with COVID basically. So we do require that someone is come. They can schedule a metro mobility, which is a service here in the Twin Cities, accessible transportation. They could certainly schedule something like that and we would meet them at the door to bring them in, um, but we don't do the scheduling for that. Okay, fair, fair enough. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing still currently with trying to deliver services during the pandemic? I think people are getting burnt out. It's been a long nine months and even though there's sort of an end in sight, so to speak, there's not really an end yet. It's going to continue for a while. We think that some of, you know, some of these adaptations might continue even after things resume a little bit. We're continually adapting and facing the um, uncertainty. Caregivers are uncertain, clients are uncertain, our staff and our other services. There's just a lot of uncertainty and that's, that's our biggest challenge is how to plan ahead without really planning ahead because everything's a bit up in the air. Um, and that's been the biggest challenge from the beginning. You know, we, when it initially occurred, everyone was talking about, oh, for the next two weeks. And then by the end, you know, by the early April, we realized actually not the case at all. But the, the timeline of everything has always been up in the air. What research and science is going to come out? What is the best way to adapt and keep people safe? That's that's still always uncertain because it is such a new thing. And then, of course, with vaccines and who and the timeline for those and all that is just so a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, it, it really is hard to project what an organization can and can't do because the rules are constantly changing. And, you know, now they're saying there's another COVID that's, you know, higher transmittable. And what does that mean? And it's not that you're supposed to get more sick, but they don't know. I mean, they really don't know yet. It's way, it's way too early to, to figure that all out. I wanted to ask you in terms of, because this is something that we haven't really talked about, and I, I don't know if you can address this, but just even in terms of funding for services and stuff, has that gotten more complicated, even with trying to apply for grants and, and all of those things that come into play because everybody's staffing has changed so much in terms of all of this? Or, or donations even, I would imagine, have had an impact. I've heard that from, from some organizations. There has been a lot of, I'm, I'm very grateful for the community here in Minnesota. There's been a lot of organizations that have put together or have sent out request proposals for COVID-related grants. In fact, for our small group respite, we have a Title III grant through the Area Agency on Aging, again, to help you know reduce costs for that as well. So there's been a lot of opportunities. I think a, a bigger challenge has been for the grants that we were awarded or the projects we were working on pre-COVID, how to continue those, adapt those, how to spend down some of those funds that were, have such specific things that we you know, couldn't necessarily continue as is. So that's been one challenge, but I've been very impressed with the number of projects that we've been able to 
say, hey, does someone want to partner with us? And, you know, a lot, a lot of the time where people are like, yes, we do. And other organizations, we've had some great partnerships with. We do have some great partnerships with other community organizations and are always happy for for more um, to be able to say, hey, we've got, we can offer this and you can offer this and let's do this service for our clients because we can see that this is something that's needed. There has been, a, I think, donation-wise, mostly we receive individual do donors who have had been impacted by our programs um, and they usually have a specific project. Like we, we'd love for you to use this money for more art. You can see from behind me, we do a lot of arts programming or to do something with the clients or to buy something for the you know, clients. I haven't, in my department here, had a major change with donations. Well, that's good. And, and I'm glad you mentioned, you know, even with the, the money that you have, it's kind of like, now what do you do with it? You're right. Because, <laughs> you know, um, clinical trials are going through that too. It's like, okay, we're all set up and ready to rock and roll. And now we can't get anybody in here. <laughs> we're having a hard time doing what we're supposed to do. And and so then it's trying to, you know, get the grant adjusted for the circumstances or, <laughs> or else trying to, like you said, spend down and, and still meet the, the standards of the grant. How about families and, and, and people who are giving care to uh, somebody with dementia? Any advice for them in terms of how to deal with the isolation and all the varying restrictions that are going on? Well, I think it's really important. I know we started off saying when the pandemic happened that they started using the phrase socially distancing and I try to avoid that as much as possible because you do not have to be socially distanced, you have to be physically distanced. So it's really important to still have those social connections. There is support out there. In my email the last couple of weeks, I've seen must be 20 different services for caregivers and their care receivers with memory loss. So there is support. I would say ask for help if you need it. If you don't need it and you feel like your situation is stable, maybe reach out to someone else because there's a chance that somebody you know, maybe someone you used to attend a support group with or used to connect with in another way, they're feeling isolated and could use that social connection as well. To just keep connecting with each other, um, ask for support. If you're not, uh, if you're a caregiver who isn't already connected with a caregiver consultant, that is a absolutely amazing services service to find you other resources. You can call here in Minnesota, the senior linkage line to find a caregiver consultant to be able to, to find those services and supports that, that are near you. Wonderful. I, I love that you mentioned the social distancing versus the physical distancing. And it was funny for me, the person who brought that to my attention was somebody with dementia and said, you know what, we have been physically distancing since we got diagnosed because people have pushed us away. In a lot of ways, they felt that they were being socially pushed away, but they adapted to using Zoom and meeting people all around the world that they never would have met. And they said, you know, I've asked them, I said, how are you adjusting? And they're like, eh, my life really hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot. We've been doing this a long, long time and we value our friendships on Zoom. So that was very interesting, but they were extremely adamant that we use the physical distancing, not the social distancing, just kind of like, you know, not calling somebody a caregiver, but calling them a care partner, a care companion, because it implies, a, you know, kind of a team effort versus just one person doing it all and not getting filled back up. And then we wonder why someone gets burnt out. Our words are real, real, real powerful. How about information to other organizations? What would you like to 
say to them during this time that might be helpful for them in serving their clients? I'd say keep it up. What you're doing is awesome. If you have adapted services or you're figuring out how to adapt, keep going, keep helping, you know, the community has come together, um, not just to be, to both receive and to give. So there's both the people who need support and we want to be there for them, but also the people who want to, you know, the volunteers or other people who with experience who want to give back and be part of that. Keep serving, keep, keep going. And I'd also say, you know, we're always interested in partnering with people. If there's something that you offer that you're like, we're thinking of doing this, but we could use some feedback or maybe we want to partner with somebody on it, reach out to another community partner. We're Wilder, we're always happy at Wilder or if there's other community partners around you, sometimes if two or three community partners put something together, there's just, you can have a more successful flushed out um, service that can really support a lot of people. Connect with, with other community organizations as well or keep up doing the good work you're doing. Yeah. Well, I know the Alzheimer's and Dementia Community Action Team has really appreciated your partnership with them and all the work uh, that you guys have stepped forward with in terms of helping from panelists and collaborations and so forth. I, I think collaboration is really, really important and is, you know, one of the strongest lessons I think that we can get out of this whole pandemic is we're not meant to do it alone. We do it better together, share ideas. Nobody owns this space. The more information we can spread, the better we'll be able to serve everybody because we're not going to run out of people to serve. Sorry to say, Um, probably not in my lifetime anyways. Cassandra, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. In wrapping up, you are with Amherst H. Wilder Foundation And you can go to their website at wilder.org forward slash aging. And email wise, go to healthyaging at wilder.org. Or you can always call direct at 651-280-2509. There's just so much out there that Wilder has to offer. You don't want to miss it. So go ahead and check them out. Well, you have a great day. And again, thank you so much for your time, Cassandra. Appreciate it. Happy New Year. You too. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.